Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. This morning, I'm excited to continue in the book of Acts. We're coming into Acts chapter 8, and as you may have picked up on, things are changing a little bit. Things are becoming cross-cultural. We saw in chapter 6 how the Grecian, the Hellenist widows, weren't getting served as much as the Hebrew widows. And so they came up with a plan, and they got some Greek-named guys, and they were serving the table. They became deacons. And amongst them, we saw Stephen, who last week uh, we saw go before the Sanhedrin and share with the Sanhedrin uh, that it wasn't Stephen that was rejecting God. It was the, them. They were the ones that were rejecting God himself. They were rejecting his story. They, they, they got it all wrong because the story has always been about Jesus Christ. And they missed all of that. And I think it's interesting as we come into this Christmas season and we talk about cross-cultural issues, there is nothing more cross-cultural and there is nothing more missionary than the birth of Christ. That he would leave heaven, the culture of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, and then come to live amongst our sin-filled, sin-riddled culture, mankind, the human race. But he came, not that he would bring divisions among the races, but that he would help us to recognize there is only one race, that is the human race. He became human to die for us, that we could be children of God. New creations, new citizens, a, a, a new kingdom that we belong to. So that's really part of the Christmas story. That's at the heart of it. Well, here in the book of Acts, we've seen uh, the Greek uh, widows. We've seen last week the synagogue of the freedmen, Romans, that were uh, converted Jews that brought charges against Stephen. We saw the Sanhedrin, and we even saw a rascal by the name of Saul, born in Tarshish of Cilicia, a foreigner, an out-of-towner. And it's getting more and more cross-cultural as we go forward. I'll pick up as I want to do, a couple verses back where we were last time. You know why I do that? It's important that we look at and study the Scripture in context, that we get a running study, that we just don't pick a verse out of the air and then go off on it all morning long. This is a story. God could have given us a theological treatise. He could have given us some kind of seminary workbook on the doctrines and theology, but He gave us his story. And so we need to receive the story he's given us. And in doing so, I'll pick up at verse 54, back in chapter 7, when they, this is the Sanhedrin now, the high council who's judging Stephen after he's called them uh, a bunch of stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Sounds like some kind of a Palestinian protest in the streets, just full-on out of control, going berserk. 55, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, says that he looked like an angel, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then he cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is, this is dramatic. This is the first Christian martyr, the first believer in Jesus Christ to follow Christ all the way to the cross, that he denied himself. He took up his cross and he followed Jesus daily till this day. 
this afternoon where he entered into eternity. In Psalm 116, in verse 15, we read, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That this is not a sad thing. This is a graduation. He's entering into victory. He's coming into heaven. He's left this culture and he's gone home. In Revelation chapter 14, we read in verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven say to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works shall follow them. And I think it's so amazing as we see this. They laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as he cried out in verse 60, Lord, do not charge them with this sin, a seed was planted. A seed was planted in the heart of Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, zealous to the point he says of himself that I persecuted the church. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at verse 9, Paul, now writing his autobiography, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And if you go through the writings of Paul, from cover to cover, from letter to letter, he is constantly bringing to remembrance what he did, who he was as responsible for the death of Stephen. In Acts chapter 26, we'll get there someday, but today we'll read verse 11. This is Paul's testimony. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so we see this, this heart of Paul that was just bitter and enraged and out of control. We read in verse 1 of chapter 8, Now Saul was consenting to his death consenting to. Now, sometimes consent would be kind of like, well, everybody was voting and I said, okay, or I voted present or something like that. But that's not what consenting means here. In the original language, this word for consenting to his death really means he was pleased with his death. He agreed to his death. He approved his death. Literally, he applauded his death. How wicked, how base, how wrong that this Pharisee of Pharisees, this Hebrew of Hebrews, one of the most learned men of the Scriptures, could come to a point where he would applaud death. But God... And that's what we're looking at this morning, but God. It says, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church was at Jerusalem. And great, the, the, the word Greek, you know it really good. It's the word mega, mega persecution. It was breaking out everywhere. It seemed like every time you turned on the news, no matter what channel, you were seeing rioting in the street short of the fact they didn't have TV, that was the situation. Great persecution broke out against the church, those that were called to Christ, which is at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Interesting, they were scattered. Isn't this what God had called the church to do? In Matthew 28, verse, at verse 19, he says, go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded them. And lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus would also say in Acts chapter 8, or chapter 1, verse 8, then you will be filled with with the Holy Spirit, for power 
to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And thus we see this hinge going on right here from the first part of the book of Acts, chapter 1 through 7, dealing fundamentally with the gospel, the good news going out to Jerusalem and the Jews. Now we're seeing this hinge that it's shifting on beyond to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's becoming fully cross-cultural, and they are scattered. This is that term for actually sowing seeds. That's what they would do when they'd go out to plant for a harvest. They would just cast the seeds out, and they would be scattered. It says, uh, verse 2, "...and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him." Just slight side note, in Israel, even devout Jews would say you do not have a funeral or any kind of celebration or remembrance for somebody who has been executed, somebody who's deemed worthy of public execution. We just go on and just put them out of our minds. Don't bring it up anymore. But that's not what happened with Stephen here. You can see this, this division in the, in the city of Jerusalem. It's in an uproar. There's the devout Jews that think this is the worst thing, and then there's the followers of Christ, the church, and they're like, you know what? We're going we're gonna to remember this, the first martyr of the Christian church. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. They made sure the world knew that Stephen died for the cause of Christ. Verse 3, and Saul, his reaction made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We, we read of this as we go through. This isn't, this isn't about Saul this morning. In chapter 9, I'll get to a lot of the background on Saul, who becomes Paul the apostle. But clearly, this is his MO, his modus operandi to go out and persecute, to go out and arrest, to go out and stand consenting to the death of people who place their faith in Messiah, Jesus Christ. It says he made havoc. That word for havoc is to just, uh, it's like they said, gnashing their teeth, tearing their clothes. He was going berserk. It's the term that would be used to describe killing a wild animal. And, and as you've wounded that animal, how they're just enraged and lashing out. And this is what Paul is doing. He's just lashing out everywhere. He's doing everything he can to stomp down these followers of the Christ. Very sad in all of this at what we see going on. In verse 4, therefore, what's therefore, therefore? Therefore, is to give you a transition, a, a, a summary, if you will, and an application. Because of what we've just read in verses 1 through 3, look what happens. This follows next. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. I think it's so funny, one of my illustrations, you've heard it a hundred times, I don't mean to bore you, but I just find it so ironic that when the bamboo curtain came down in China under Mao Zedong and the red Chinese in communist China, one of the things they did, and they're continuing to do to this day, is persecute the Christians, throw them in jail. And what happened was they threw so many Christians in jail that the jail became the seminary. And all the Christians were preaching to each other, teaching each other, training up to be pastors. And when they had finished whatever term the government determined they'd have to stay in jail, they didn't want them to go back in their community to just start up their church again. So they had this wonderful idea, we'll send them off to the far-fung corners of Mon Mongolia, and we'll make them postal carriers, because these guys have these routes where they've got to go on long, sol solitary journeys. They'll be all by themselves. And what did they end up doing? They took all those seminary jail-trained pastors and just spread them all over the nation of China. <laughs> they scattered them, and, and, and the church grew, and it's growing today. And the numbers of Christians converting to Christianity in China are just 
amazing. They're overwhelming. And sometimes we just need to change our channel a little bit and look at the good news, right? Look at some of the Christian broadcasting network or some of the, I know the podcasts that y'all like to watch, but there's good stuff going on in the world today. I had read in one of the Wednesday night uh, classes we had just recently in Gaza that um, the reports coming out of Gaza, many of the Palestinians there have been seeing visions of Jesus Christ. And over 200 people have come to Christ. And there's these small little churches, Christians in Gaza. Palestinians can be Christians. They're not necessarily all uh, radical Hamas. But these small churches, these persecuted churches, they've got this problem now because if they go anywhere or these people who've converted from Islam go anywhere out in public, they'll be instantly killed. And yet if they don't leave, they're subject to being bombed and, 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 and these types of things. So they're in, they're in a tight spot. We need to be praying. We need to be praying for the persecuted church. There are more Christians being martyred today than ever in all of human history when we look at the records of what's going on. And the reason that is, is because the time is short. And Satan knows he's just got to get as many as possible. And yet, as the darkness grows darker, the light shines brighter. Tertullian, who was a uh, theologian um, from Carthage, it's in North Africa, and uh, it was about the second century, end of the second century, 190, uh, he was famous for saying, because they were coming under tremendous persecution, and he came up with this that you might have heard, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You kill a Christian, and more rise up, and you just can't kill the church. Jesus would say, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You can't prevail against the church. I think one of the things that Tertullian is also noted for, he has a number of writings and one of his other famous quotes you might not hear as often, but I think it's so good to hear. His, he says, hope is patience with its lamp lit. Hope, that promise that the morning star will rise, that we will win, that we are heaven-bound, and we are patiently winding our way through the valley of the shadow of darkness, right? But we shall not fear. He's with us. He's holding us by the hand. Our job in this dark time is to let our little light shine. Hope is patience with its lamp lit. And so, yes, there is chaos breaking out in the streets of Jerusalem. People are being driven out of Jerusalem. It says the 12 apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. But all the deacons, uh, the Stephens, he, he didn't leave, obviously, but we're going to see Philip and many others and much of the church, they just they flee into other places. Well, look where they go to, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. He went where? Where? Samaria. You know where Samaria is? Samaria is modern-day Sebaste. It's along the Transjordanian mountains. It's this spine that runs from north to south in Israel, dividing the, wet, the Mediterranean coast from the Jordan River Valley, and it's the high ground. It's north of Jerusalem, um, and Samaria, Sebaste, is in what is now known as, familiar to you, the West Bank, Palestinian territory. A lot of what we're seeing in the news deals with that region, not just Gaza, but the West Bank. And so, persecution develops in Jerusalem for the Christian church, and what do they do? They go to the West Bank. They go to Samaria. You can say that with me. Try it. Samaria. It was a place that was highly frowned upon. In 2 yeah, Kings chapter 17, when the nation of Israel, there was the 12 tribes of Israel. They divided after King Solomon, uh, and the ten tribes to the north, they kept the name Israel, 
and two tribes that split from them stayed loyal to God. They were Judah and Benjamin. But in the ten northern tribes, they were wicked. They put up altars, golden calves, and all these kinds of things. And as you read through the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, they did wicked, 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 especially the northern tribes. There was never a good king. They just got more and more wicked until 722 A.D., prophesied by so many prophets, the Assyrians came in from the north and conquered Israel and hauled away all the middle class, all the royalty, all the people that were businessmen or merchants, they only left the peasants, the, the salt of the, the earth, the, the really common people. They left them behind. And then what they did, we read about it in 2 Kings uh, 17, 23, and 24, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets, so Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day. Verse 24 of 2 Kings 17, Then the king of Assyria uh, brought people from Babylon, Kuthah, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possessions of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. W where are you going with this, Mike? The, uh, the, the thing is, what used to be the nation of Israel, the promised land, the Jewish people, were taken away, they were replaced with foreigners, and then they intermarried, they interbred, and they became half-breeds. They adulterated their religion, they mixed Judaism with all the pagan religions called syncretism, and uh, they became so ingrown, literally inbred. If you go to that area north of Jerusalem today in the hill country, they have all kinds of problems with um, congenital diseases that are passed down because there's, there's no mixing of the gene pool. They stay to themselves, the Samaritans, and, and they just got all kinds of problems. Well, especially here in the book of Acts, in the days of the early church, in the days of Jesus. We read in Acts chapter 10, in verses 5 and 6, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So don't even go to the Samaritans. I'm sending you out, but don't bother with those Samaritans. Go to the house of Israel. In Luke chapter 9, we read in verses 51 through 56, now it came to pass when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? And he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know of what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. James and John earned the nickname Sons of Thunder, Boanerges, because they wanted just to smoke them, right? Just get rid of those Samaritans. In fact, we see it in Jesus himself. In John chapter 4, he's visiting a woman at a well, as he's passing through Samaria. And in verse 9, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. I'm going to jump on down to the conversation at verse 20. She goes on to say, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. For God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so here we are in the book of Acts, in chapter, five, chapter 8, verse 5, Philip goes 
to Samaria. And what does he do? He preaches. He just shares Jesus. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you what God did for me. And the people listened. They received. Um, it says, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoke by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Woohoo! Hallelujah! The good news has come to Samaria. Just as Jesus had said, the hour is coming and now is where those who worship him will worship in spirit and in truth. And Philip, who just started out as a waiter, just waiting tables, I'll serve in the church, I'll find something to do. He finds something to do, he goes and he preaches amongst these people that normally they would have nothing to do with. And they listen and they received because there's power in the name of Jesus. And this is a key for you. It's a key for me. It's a key for us, the church. We go in the name of Jesus. We go in the power of Jesus. We go in the authority of Jesus. All authority is given Him. Go, therefore, He would say. You will be endued. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. But you got to go out and light your light. You got to go out and stand up and tell the world, what has Jesus done for you? I would pray every single one of us would have a pocket testimony, a, a one minute just tell me about your Jesus. And you could just in one minute say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was raised in the church until I was 28 years old. I lived a hedonistic lifestyle. I was that profligate. I was that, that son that was just a waste. And then God entered my life. I met Jesus Christ. I met the Word, made flesh, powerful, active, alive, and I was born again. I became a new Christian, and I've been walking with Jesus ever since. Let me tell you about my Jesus. You would have nothing to do with me when I was 28, and today you have no idea what my history is because my history, my biography has become His story. Do you have a one-minute pocket testimony that you can tell people of how Jesus has changed your life, who Jesus is? Because that's what Philip did. He's not a great theologian. He waits tables. But he told, he preached about Jesus, and the multitudes with one accord heeded. They're like, wow, you can't refute the power of a person's testimony. This is what Stephen did. They, they, they couldn't resist the words of Stephen. They were gnashing their teeth. They stoned him to death, but they couldn't stop his message, and they couldn't stop his life. And here, Philip doing the same things, and, and this is great. It says, great joy in that city. Woo-hoo, hallelujah, right? Uh, revivals broke out in Samaria. Woo-hoo. But, that's what it says next, right? Verse 9, but... <laughs> a negative conjunction, along with the great revival that's breaking out, along with, at the same time, same place, intermingled with this wonderful work of God, there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Simon. He's also known, if you were to Google him, Simon Magus. Magus, M-A-G-U-S, is the singular form of a term that you know very well in the plural, magi. Magi, right? Like the three wise men from the east who came to visit Christ when he was born. And so Simon Magus, the term magi, it's where we get the word for magic. 
okay? And these maga, this magus, Simon magus, these magi, also known as magicians, were proficient, proficient in the arts of sorcery. Now, sorcery indeed is powerful. The, the Greek word for sorcery, pharmakia, from where we get pharmaceuticals, drugs. How often the door to the occult can be opened, can be induced through drugs and potions and these kinds of things. And this Simon guy knew how to work that. And, and be sure for certain, this business of sorcery, the occult, the demonic, it is real. You know this. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, they're real, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, the occult, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a cosmic battle for the soul of mankind going on. It's been going on since day one when God spoke and the world came into existence. We see Satan right there in the garden trying to thwart God's plan through Adam and Eve, and it's been going on ever since. And Simon Magus, he's tapped into this power, this dark power. And people are impressed. Man, this guy's great. He's the power of God. And isn't it just, it's, we read in the Scriptures that we shouldn't be fooled by Satan, who comes dressed as an angel of light, right? He's all smooth, slick talking. If you see a guy walking down the street someday in red lycra with a tail and horns and a pitchfork, I guarantee you it's not Satan. That's not how he goes around. He comes to church on Sunday. He dresses up, washes, brushes his hair, brushes his teeth. You know, he looks slick. He, he's going to, he's trying to wile his way into the church. And, and here it is, Revival's breaking out, Samaria is getting born again, and who comes to church? The devil in Simon Magus, a sorcerer. The city was astonished, and the people of Samaria claiming he was someone great, and they all gave heed to him. And they heed him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. He had a great reputation. Everybody knew about him. And uh, just something that it goes on in the world today. We should not be surprised. Verse 12, but here comes another one, okay? Revival breaks out, but Simon Megas, a sorcerer, he's doing all that stuff, but, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And when you confess Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, the gospel, the good news, that your sins, your debt, your penalty for being a sinner has been erased. It was paid for 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary, and I stand here today just as if I'd never sinned in the eyes of God, justified in God. And now he's continuing that work of fitting me for heaven, but when you confess Jesus, you're born again. And this is what's happening. But when they believed Philip as they preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And we see this repeat itself throughout the Scriptures. Baptism, a public declaration of what is going on in your heart. I can't see in your soul. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're thinking right now. And some of you are probably like, oops, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about what you're saying. And all of a sudden I got your attention, right? There's work going on, but baptism is a way to come out and say, in as much as is in my power, as much as I know how, I've given my heart to God. I'm imperfect in this. I know it's going to take from here to eternity till the day that I walk in through the portals of heaven. I'm going to be working on this project <laughs> called sanctification, or I love what Dallas calls it, spanctification, because that's what it feels like sometimes the corrections that we need along the way till He works out all the dross, all the sin in our life, and we become perfect, glorified, 
in heaven. But they have received, and now they do public testimony. They are baptized. They just want to let the whole world know, I'm a new creation in Christ. The old man's died. All things have passed away. Everything has become new. I'm a new creature in Christ. They got baptized. Verse 13, then Simon himself was also believed. What does it say? Read that with me. Then Simon himself also believed. Believed what? Doesn't say for sure. Did he believe the signs and wonders? He's pretty wrapped up in signs and wonders. That's his gig, right? That's, that's, that's what he does for a living. He's a signs and wonder guy. Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Well, of course, it'd be amazing to him, but in so many levels, and I, I'm bringing a little bit of what's coming next into this, it's, it's really fair to believe that he wasn't a believer in the sense that he has confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in his heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you own that in your heart, that's your testimony, your bio biography becoming his story, if that's the case, you're safe, you're signed, you're sealed, you're delivered, you're a Christian, you're heaven-bound. But there's a lot of people that will give voice to it for peer pressure, uh, political expediency, or possibly even for profit. It's known that magicians to this day buy and sell their secrets, right? And then when they learn how to do a trick, they're not going to tell you, right? But they would give you, if you give them enough money, they will, right? And so these things are bought and sold. It's just a matter of, of, of marketing and business. So we don't really know what's going on in his heart, but we can see by his behavior often a reflection of what's inside will come out in the way that you behave, right? So let's see what this looks like. Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Just let me really quick throw in this one little piece for you because we get to signs and wonders, gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit and all of these kinds of things. Be certain, as you go through the Scripture, you will always see the message first, then supported, or in, and then miracles to confirm the message, that the message is valid. And so it's not really the miracles that we're supposed to look for. It's not the signs that we're supposed to look for. It's the Word that we're supposed to listen for. It's the Word that we're learning to obey and do. And then in obeying and do it, that's when we see God's hand move, okay? But we don't want to get the cart in front of the horse. We don't want to get the miracles in front of the Lord. Lord first and miracles second. But Simon, he's got it mixed. Uh, verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, then they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, a little bit of theology in here. I don't want to belabor the point, but in receiving God and receiving the Holy Spirit, when you confess God, Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved, you will be born again, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. We've seen in the book of Acts three different ways that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of people. One is He comes alongside, He woos you, He guides you, He directs you, He speaks of, He points to Jesus. There's a point when you see Jesus, you acknowledge Him, you receive Jesus, and the Holy Spirit enters into your heart. The first one, para, the Holy Spirit comes alongside. Then the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. That's what it says here in chapter 16, for as yet He had not fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in, that's and in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they're born again. The Holy Spirit's moved in, but the Holy Spirit has of yet not come upon them. That's the, the word epi. So, the Holy Spirit comes alongside, then the Holy Spirit moves in, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which is to say, 
overflows you. You're covered in the Holy Spirit. You're manifesting whatever graces that it is that God would have him manifest through you. We see this frequently throughout the Scriptures. In Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus, and when he comes to Ephesus, he meets people who have been instructed in who Jesus is by Apollos, uh, the person who had come prior to him. In Acts chapter 19, verse 2, we, he said to them, these people that he met, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism, speaking of the baptism of John the Baptist, who spoke of Jesus. Um, then Paul said, John indeed baptized with baptism of repentance, saying to the people they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on the Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, that's a P, overflowed them, came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now there were about 12 men in all. And this is something that we see in the Scriptures, and it's not to become confused. It's really very, very simple. God loves you. He loves you so much He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. The penalty for sin, the, the universal exchange currency is blood, and Jesus paid with His blood. So your debt's paid. You're now a child of God. If you will just receive it, if you will just believe it. And when you believe it, the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. You're born again, and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see sometimes, such as in a couple chapters when Peter visits Cornelius' household and they receive Jesus, they are born again and the Holy Spirit comes all upon them all at once. In other cases, they're born again, like Paul coming to Ephesus, but they haven't been sharing or manifesting the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, those types of things. So it's, you can be a Christian, you, you, can't, you, let's say, you can be a Christian and not be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, the, and that's only to say you're not just dunked, immersed, overflowing in the Holy Ghost. You've met people like that, right? They're Christian. They're, they're not not Christian. They do believe, but their life doesn't evidence Wow, the power of the Holy Spirit in their witnessing, in their life, in their overcoming sin, in their victories in life. They struggle or they're just not forward or letting their little light shine. They kind of just cower. That doesn't mean they're not born again. But there is more. And this is what Peter and John have asked them, right? Now, Peter and John are there. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says to the disciples or the apostles they would become, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to uh, Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That was his given name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father who is in heaven. And at that time then, uh, they acknowledge, and Jesus says, and and." Upon this confession, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And that, that idea of the keys to the kingdom, it's not that you can say who gets to get in and who gets to get out, right? We have all these, this uh, silly stuff that goes around about St. Peter at the pearly gates and he's going to meet you there and you got to say the right password to get in, right? This all comes from this keys to the kingdom. But all that simply means is they know how to open kingdom, the kingdom to the people. They know what that is. And here Philip has gone down. He's preached. They've believed, but they have, as of yet, not received the Holy Spirit. The church in Jerusalem gets wind. There's revival breaking out in Samaria. We need to send some of our apostles. I get it. Peter, John, you head on up there to Samaria. See what's going on. Check it out. Make sure it's real. They come across all these people that's great joy in the city. And there's this Simon guy, and he's got this thing going on. And Peter and John, they ask, have you received the Holy Spirit? Well, we don't even know. They laid hands on him. They received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized. And now what used to be a mega revival is a mega, 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 mega revival because it's multiplied times how many witnesses just overflowing in the Holy Spirit. So this beautiful thing is going on 
but Simon himself, he got baptized, he got dunked all right, but he's not manifesting the gifts of the Spirit. What's going wrong? Did it not work? Isn't that the formula? I say, Jesus is God, and I go get in water, and I should be able to have sparks flying from my fingertips, right? That's kind of what he's thinking. Verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when he had come down and prayed for them, they might receive the Holy Spirit, for it's not fallen upon them. Just came in them, but not upon them. Just a side note for those that you keep track, this is the last mention of John in the book of Acts, okay? And it's kind of ironic that where's the last place we see John in the book of Acts? Samaria. You want me to call down lightning on him? And here he is in the middle of revival, and that's the last we hear of him. But, but God brought that full circle in his life. He got to see Samaria receive Jesus. Anyways, they've laid hands on them. They've received the Holy Spirit, verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands of the apostles, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I want to buy that, right? We talk about magicians and their tricks, and I'd like to give, give you a little bit of money. I could do that too, right? Wouldn't that be cool? But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound in iniquity. And in this, I think it's, it's, it's pure Peter, just, just what you expect from Peter, loud, proud, bold Peter. Simon says, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. It's a free gift. It can't be purchased. It's not available in that way. Uh, there's a, a, a word, you could look it up in your dictionary, called simony. It's named after this, Simon Magus. Simony is the term that describes purchasing an ecclesiastical office, purchasing a position in the church by paying for it. Uh, it's something that actually grew out of the 9th and 10th century Roman Catholic Church, there was a season through the 9th and 10th centuries where the popes got their position by paying for it. It would go to the highest bidder, and whoever could outbid one another would become the pope. And this was the Holy Roman Empire. They were pope of planet earth. There was a lot of power that went with it. You just had to win the bidding wars. In fact, it's interesting, uh, some of the guys, John the 19th, it's, it's said of him that he was able to pass all the clerical uh, tests in one afternoon. He was so awesome. Basically, it took him that long to write the check. And he became the pope, Pope the Ninth, John the 19th. Following after him, Pope Benedict, the first of many Benedicts to come, he got the office when his family paid for him to become Pope. He was 12 years old. This is simony. This is purchasing ecclesiastical power, position, prestige, the office of the leader, because in that, you've got the keys to the kingdom, and you can do all kinds of amazing things, or at least that's how it was sold, okay? Flat-out sin. To their credit, the Roman Catholic Church has completely disavowed that. Julius, in the 15th century, Pope Julius came out and said, uh-uh, no more, nothing like that. That's not the way we roll. They, they, they realized it was wrong and quit it. It goes on. I'm not just picking on Roman Catholics. It's very common in Protestant churches, simony, buying of office. And how, do that, how does that happen? A lot of people simply, they go to a seminary, the best seminary. They pay for their degree. They study. They get a degree. And then with that degree, they exchange the degree for a pastorate, for a uh, professorship, for some kind of a position for which they'll get a salary because they have a diploma. 
And if the diploma says masters of theology, they get X salary. But if they study more and get a doctorate, they get more salary. And in all of this, it's really just exchanging money for salary, buying a position. Now, that's not to say there's anything wrong with going to seminary and studying and getting learned. We all should study to show ourselves approved, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of God. That's, that's, that rests on every one of us, not just pastors, not just pre preachers. But at the same time, you've got to be careful as to why you're doing it and what you're doing it for. In 1 Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, uh, I'll read uh, in chapter 6, uh, he's speaking about these false teachers who have corrupt minds and are destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. For some, for, for some or from such, withdraw yourself. Don't have anything to do with those people. Now, godliness with contentment, not desiring, not coveting, not greedy, just being godly and content with that as your reward. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through, they pierce themselves through with many sorrows." drowning themselves into perdition. It's interesting here, as Peter responds to Simon, he says to him, your money perish with you. Literally, that could be translated, you and your money can go to hell. That, I, I know that's harsh and coming off the lips of a pastor in a pulpit in a church on Sunday morning, maybe it shocked you. But Peter shouldn't shock you. You should know him by now. This is, this is how Pete is. He just says it. And that, that really isn't, that would be, that's a J.B. Phillips translation, by the way, if you're familiar with the message by J.B. Phillips, that's how he translates that. And it's done so that you feel the impact of what Peter just said. Your money perish with you um, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money, right? The wages of sin is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. There's no charge to become a child of God. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. Remember I told you uh, in Matthew 16 where he made the great profession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and uh, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church, and the keys of the kingdom have been given unto you. Right after that, if you just read the next couple of verses in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem where they're going to spitefully use me and kill me. And Peter says, not so. Do you remember Jesus' answer? Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You're thinking like a mortal. You're supposed to be a child of God. You need eternal perspective. This is what I have to do. I'm going to heaven to save the world. And you can't be saying, not so. Get behind me, Satan. And another time, Peter, in the upper room, the night that Jesus was arrested, but before they had gone out of the upper room, Jesus brought out a pitcher of water, girded himself, and began to wash the disciples' feet. And remember what Peter said? Not so, Lord. You're not going to wash my feet. And you remember what Peter, or what Jesus said to Peter? If I have, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no part in me. Where do you think Peter got these words? Simon, you can't buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have no part in me. I love that. You have not, neither part nor portion in this matter. If that's what you think your ticket to heaven is, your stairway to heaven, that there's a, the, a lady I know, right, that, that song from Led Zeppelin, 
that you can buy your way to heaven. It doesn't work that way. It just, it does not work that way. And we want to clear that up. But look at what Peter then says after he really, he really just dresses them down. Let your money perish with you. Then what does he say? Repent, therefore, because the peat of I, you have no part in me, the peat of get behind me, Satan, is also the peat who was forgiven by the Lord. Do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. Then Peter, feed my sheep. Get back to work. Get back in the saddle. Get back out there preaching the good news, just distributing that, that bread of life. Feed my sheep. And here's Peter now advising Simon, Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. That's good advice. You have a wicked thought? Repent. Ask God. Forgive me. He does. That's what He died for. He ever lives to intercede for us. If we will confess with our mouth, if we will say we have sinned, He's faithful and He's just. He will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness, and pray if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Verse 23, for I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound in iniquity. There's something wrong in your heart. You got to get that out. You got to fix that. Then Simon answered and said, look at his answer. Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. How sad. That's an inside job. You've got to pay or you've got to pray <laughs> for your repentance. You've got to ask God to check your heart and see if there's any wicked way in you. I can't do it for you. I know uh, it's been taught in the church along with simony, the purchasing of offices, that somehow that pope, that priest, that pastor has power to forgive and you'll come and ask a pastor, could you please pray for my forgiveness? Well, I can lead you in a prayer. That's what we call the sinner's prayer. I can lead you in that prayer, but you got to pray it. It's got to come out of your heart. I can't pray it for you. And here's Simon, pray for me. And, and it's just so lame. Pray to the Lord that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. He doesn't pray for repentance. He doesn't pray for a right heart. He doesn't pray that the bitterness be removed. He just says, pray for me that I don't have to face the consequences. I'm sorry, but if you've done something stupid, that's on you, and you're going to have to live with it. I've got to live with mine. I do stupid stuff. I get consequences, and I've got to deal with it. That's not yours. That's mine. We've each got to go to the Lord, to that throne room of grace, where we can receive mercy in time of need, but we have to plead the blood of Jesus Christ and allow Jesus to do that work in removing that bitterness from our hearts Verse 25, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Amazing here. I'm going to ask the worship team, come on up, please. Um, when they had testified, so Peter and, or, yeah, Peter and John came down to Samaria. They laid hands. They received the Holy Spirit. Revival broke out. Great joy in Samaria. The word is going forward just as Jesus said it would. You will receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and now Judea, Samaria, and it's going to keep going through the book of Acts. And just as Jesus said it would, we're watching this hinge of history as it opens the door to you and me to the ends of the earth, to Haber Idaho. It's gotten this far. When they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And I love this. They were sent by Jerusalem, by the church, to Samaria to check everything out. They did. They joined in. And now, coming back, they are preaching in all the different villages of Samaria. This is the first mission journey of the church. They were officially sent with a commission to bring the good news, and they did it. Now, I know in the book of Acts, we're very comfortable with calling, well, there's Paul's first, second, and third missionary journeys, and that kind of a thing, and those are all valid, but this is the actual first 
sending out of apostles, representatives, and they went out and did the work of a missionary. They evangelized, people received, and lives were changed. But finishing on that idea of lives were changed, I just have to visit this verse one more time, and it only will take a minute. Peter says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gift of wisdom, through insights into a soul of a sinner, Peter says, I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. In the book of Hebrews, we're instructed in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest a root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. This is something that is so prevalent in the church. People who come to church, they believe, they say, they follow with Philip, they go to church, but they battle the bitterness in their soul. Bitterness often planted by a parent. How many stories do we have of my mother or my father or whatever? It could be a sibling. It could be a friend. It could be something you had nothing to do with. It could be bitterness because you were sent off to fight a war and saw things that have just destroyed your soul, and you're bitter, and you've got this bitterness, and you don't know what to do with this bitterness. You've got to address it. Lest a root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You know, when you hold bitterness in your heart, especially bitterness to another person, or bitterness to a circumstance that you had no control over in your life, or maybe even bitterness to some bonehead thing you did, and the consequences that just won't let you go. When you have that bitterness in your heart, it causes trouble. And it says, and many become defiled. Not just you. You're not the only one that has to deal with it. And you know who usually gets caught up in the crossfire? You know who usually carries the burden of your bitterness? Your spouse. Your children. You're affecting them with your bitterness. Your grandchildren. That's who usually gets it. You know, it's been said, bitterness is like having that, like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. It doesn't work that way. It poisons you. You are poisoned with bitterness. I just want to close with this, not because I'm trying to psychoanalyze you or give you some project for the day, but if, you've, if, if you're struggling with this, God wants you to be free. David struggled with bitterness. King David, he had lots to be bitter about. He would write it down. He journaled it. He'd add a tune to it. He'd make it into a song. I'm going to ask you to recite the lyrics from one of David's songs that has to do with bitterness. I'll read a line in prayer, and you pray after me. This comes out of Psalm 51. Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. Amen? Amen. I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ continue that work which He has begun in you until the day of Christ Jesus. And should that come before next Sunday, we'll see you there. <laughs> Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.